And good afternoon. It is 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM, located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. In the first hour coming up on the show today, uh, from an August 20th reading at Novel Idea Bookstore and as MC by Allison Castiles. You'll hear readings by Michael Castiles, Jeff Latosik, uh, Katerina Wright, and E. Martin Nolan. And in the second hour, I'm beginning it with a reading at the September 22nd, 100,000 Poets for Change event here in Kingston uh, that will consume much of this show for the next few weeks. Uh, you'll hear... Uh, Tammy Selena Tuck with Greg Jones on guitar reading her dedication poem to Gord Downey. Following that, you'll hear readings by Marilyn Simons and Wayne Grady at the September 6th uh, double launch of their books in the uh, Davies Lounge at the Grand Theater. Uh, their books called Refuge and Up from freedom. This first, though, the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally, some poetry, spoken word, and music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the integrity of both the author and the piece. I do have a few uh, quickly approaching events. I'll spend at least a few minutes at the end of the second hour today uh, to catch you up on those. So to begin it, again, from the August 20th reading held at Novel Idea Bookstore and as emceed by Ellison Castiles, a first in it. Here is Michael Castiles. Hi everyone, uh, thanks for coming out tonight and um, I'm going to be hosting the event. So I'm Alison Castiles or Alison Chisholm is my, my writerly name. Um, and so I, I just wanted to first introduce the writers tonight or the readers who we'll be hearing from. So we're going to hear from local writer Michael Castiles, Katrina Wright, Jeff Latosik, and E. Martin Nolan. And uh, before we start, I just wanted to thank everyone for coming and thank Novel Idea for hosting the space and thank Bruce and uh, thank our readers. And so um, what we'll do tonight is we'll hear, the, we'll hear two readers first for 20 minutes approximately. We'll take a break for about 10 or 15 minutes and then we'll come back and hear from our, this, the last two readers. So we'll start tonight by hearing from Michael Castiles. So Michael E. Castiles is the author of over a dozen books of poetry. His first full-length collection of poetry, The Last White House at the End of the Row of White Houses, was published in autumn of 2016 by Invisible Press, or Invisible Publishing. He lives, and he lives in Kingston where he runs Puddles of Sky Press. And also, he's my husband. And books are for sale. <laughs> and so let's bring up Michael Castiles. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, I'm going to read tonight from a project that I've been working on for the last couple months, which is basically like a novel, although I don't really know if there's a real plot to it yet or what's happening. Um, but I think I'm about 60 chapters in, so I should have an idea, but I still don't. Um, so I'm going to read just uh, maybe four chapters from this project. 
This is chapter five. I couldn't shake from my mind the thought that I belonged somewhere else, some other time. It was a thought that came to me regularly, which sometimes subsided and sometimes raged within my brain, making me uncertain of my own age and name. The problem was that I didn't know where else or when else I belonged. France in the late 1700s, the all-night diner, yesterday at 3.35 p.m., or was it a.m.? The thought was like a storm front creeping into my skull. If I kept moving, I could stay ahead of it. If I filled my head with trivial facts or day-to-day -day plans, then I could push that thought out, keep it at bay, at least for a while. Some nights, I take a long walk, not so much to clear my head, but to fill it with the cool, dark air and whatever else stood out of the shadows. A rabbit, statue still on my neighbor's front lawn, an open carton of chocolate milk upright beneath a street light, a scrap of paper skittering across the sidewalk. These were the best kind of nights, when I felt like me, like I was right where I was supposed to be. But then I'd get home, I'd brush my teeth, wash my face, climb into bed, close my eyes, and stare into the backside of my eyelids, wondering about all the choices I'd made. A muffin over a scone, or a turn I'd made, left instead of right, or something I'd said, goodbye instead of so long. The uncertainty weighed on my chest, and the more I thought of my choices and their alternatives, the more I felt splintered, like a part of me had, in fact, taken the scone or turned right or said so long, and now I was in six different places at once. But it went even further, as things tend to do when one is shattering. Because if I'd said I wanted the scone, I'd have been asked blueberry or cheddar and chives, and I'd be split even further, each piece going their own way, but a little less me than before. And if I'd chosen the blueberry, I'd have been asked, do you want it heated? And I'd be divided again, further and further towards some distant decimal place, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, infinitely, until I was everywhere, all at one time. It's with these thoughts that sleep finally came to me, while every other me lay there, eyes closed, wondering to which universe they really belonged. Chapter 9 The officer taps on my window with his flashlight. I roll it down. The officer says, Good evening, sir. Have you been drinking? No, I reply because I haven't. He asks if I know how fast I've been going, and I say, 120. He says, 128. And I say, I'm sorry, sir. The officer taps on my window with his flashlight. I roll it down. The officer yanks his gun from its holster, points it at my head, and says, get the hell out of your car and get your hands on your head, or I swear to God, I'll shoot you the fuck down in 10, 9, 8. I struggle with my seatbelt. It won't come undone. The officer taps on my window with his flashlight. I roll it down. The officer has the face of a fish. His eyes are glazed and his mouth opens like he's gasping for air, but it seems like he's choking. I tell him to get in. I tear down the highway, make a turn at the old stone bridge. I skid into the gravel parking lot. I have to carry the officer down to the shore, where I slip him into the river. 
The officer taps on my window with his flashlight. I tap back with mine. The officer taps on my window with his flashlight. I roll down the hill and the officer chases me for a few steps, trying to open the door, which is, luckily, still locked. He turns back to his car and jumps in, turns on the flashing lights and the siren, when suddenly his car explodes into a cloud of cherry blossoms. The officer taps on my window with his flashlight, and I know, after all these years, they finally caught up with me. I reach my hand down to that nook in the driver's side door. The officer taps on my window and I say, what's this about? He says, you were speeding. I say, this is my house. And he looks around, nodding his head and muttering as if it were a reminder. Oh yes, houses are the stationary ones. <laughs> the officer taps his flashlight. It won't turn on. He's alone on a dark highway, a rustle in a nearby bush. Chapter 16. This story isn't the kind that most people want to read. It's not about love or the obstacles one needs to overcome to become who they were meant to be. There's no protagonist, no villain. There's a setting, but the setting shifts from word to word. It's no chronicle of man versus nature or nature versus nurture. There's a beginning, of course, but I can't pin it down and it keeps rolling up behind me. So therefore, the middle is an approximation and the end? Well, I don't know about that just yet. This is not the beginning and it's not exactly the middle, but if my calculations are correct or even somewhat accurate, then I believe we're still within the first three-sevenths of the prologue, which means you've missed the opening credits, but you won't be too lost when the narrator says, thus, the hard hat wearing gentleman balanced on the girder far above the city, staring down into the empty building's ribcage. Can you imagine this gentleman? Here are a few more details that might help in such endeavor. He is a tall man in construction garb, heavy steel-toed leather boots, laced, double-knotted, faded blue jeans, tool belt loaded, tape measure, hammer, wrench, a pocket stuffed with giant nuts and bolts a red flannel shirt buttoned up to his chest where a tuft of hair juts out, sleeves rolled up to elbow, a leather glove on each hand. His neck is thick, his chin flecked with stubble as if he hasn't shaved in days, which is most likely the case. His mustache, though, seems well-groomed, trimmed neatly, the same brown as his hair that can be glimpsed from beneath his yellow, beaten hard hat. If you look close enough, you can see that his eyes are green and watering as a result of the wind this high up. Can you imagine him now? Can you hear his voice when he says, from this height, I can see my entire life stretched out behind me. This isn't a story about this man, though it seems like something deeply complex is running through his mind. It's not a story about the building, though every building has a story. This story is the wind rushing around the top of this building's skeleton, causing green eyes to water as they look down and contemplate everything they've seen. But even that is just a metaphor and not the story itself. The narrator might be able to offer more insight than I can, as I haven't read the story yet. But he's just clocked out for a coffee break and won't be back for another 15 minutes in which time the story will have metamorphosed into another story, a story 
you might actually want to read, or something entirely different, a hammer, or the lake, or the shadow of a cat sitting in the windowsill, or the body of a dead bird lying on the welcome mat. And this is the last chapter I'll read. This is chapter 35. My neighbor's dog is crying again. He's been at it since 7 o'clock this morning. I know because that's when he woke me up. Here's what I imagine is happening. He's coming to the realization that another day is passing by and he's going to miss it. Another day which feels like a week, for every hour is seven hours and it's only been four, but to him an entire day has already passed. He's young but growing old. He'll never get these moments back and there's nowhere for him to dig a hole to bury them. They keep zipping past like the tires he'd love to chase if ever untethered. He cries out for release, his soul bound by chain, his treats out of reach, his people who leave and might never return. A clock ticks above the kitchen doorway, but he doesn't know what it means. All he knows is the scent that lingered, the scent now dispersed and disappearing. He cries into the void that chases him through his dreams. He cries for his mother, who, deep in his bones, he still remembers. He cries because time is the vacuum that causes his legs to shake. He walks from room to room, sniffing, whimpering, and crying. He's no longer certain how many times he's done this, for the floors are bereft of crumbs. His toenails click across the floor, and he curls on the rug, then moves to the couch, then to the bed. Then he lifts his head when he hears footsteps on the sidewalk. He runs to the door and sits, but it doesn't open. He whimpers and cries out against these false hopes. He cries because the day is so close, but it's also impossibly far. He'd never make it on his own. He walks from room to room, sniffering, whimpering, and crying, uncertain of how many times he's done this. He cries because yesterday and tomorrow are always the same distance away. He cries because the only meaning he can find is in his chew toys, which inevitably never last long. He cries because the shoes call to him, their leather skin like some vague reminder of an earlier life. He cries because a window is open upstairs and the sound of a dog walking past the house reminds him of his captive state. He scampers up and looks down onto the street below. Jealousy growls and snaps out of him. He later cries at his own uncontrollable nature. He tries to sleep, but it's never restful, for the void continues to dog his footsteps. He doesn't turn to see what it looks like or to smell what it smells like. He runs. His legs twitch and his breathing comes out in short, muffled bursts. Then he's awake again, crying to bring company to his unabating loneliness. A telephone rings, but he just hears it. More footsteps on the sidewalk force him back to the front door, where he sits and waits his tail swishing sadly across the floor. Thank you. And you just heard Michael Castile's and his reading as a part of a four readers a reading at on the at uh, Novel Idea Bookstore on August 20th, and again as emceed by Alison Castiles. And following her introduction to him, up next you're going to hear 
Jeff Latosik. Thanks, Michael. And um, I just want to remind everyone that the authors have brought some of their books, so if you want to take a look um, during the break or after, and I'll be putting the featured writer in the in this little chair <laughs> when when they're reading. In case you have, in case you need a reference point, you can look over here. <laughs> and so I'm going to next introduce uh, Jeff Latosik and his third full-length poetry um, book of poetry, Dreampad, was released in the in spring of 2018. He's also the author of Helium Ear, a chapbook from Anthrather. Anthrather <laughs> <laughs> Press. He's the former poetry editor at the hum at Humber Literary Review and is um, a current collective member of Inkwell Workshops. Jeff is currently the um, writer in residence at the uh, A or the Alperty A Frame. Um, and so let's bring up Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for this uh, great turnout. Uh, thanks to Novel Idea, too, for adding me. Um, yeah, I've been at Pal's Place for about three weeks now, so you guys are like the first people I've seen in <laughs> three, three weeks. So if you notice any strangeness <laughs> or awkwardness, it's, it's those three weeks and nothing else. <laughs> um, so this is my book here that was uh, released in the spring, and um, as I was writing it, I was thinking uh, the title of kind of like a couple different things, but there's an actual uh, an instrument that a lot of DJs play and electronic uh, musicians play. It's called like a modular uh, controller. It looks like a calendar, but it all lights up, and you can basically make any uh, sound you want with it. Um, and so as I was writing the book, I, I came to the realization that there's also a product called the DreamPad that was on Shark Tank, and it's like a pillow that you sleep on that plays music. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, while I tried to make the book uh, look like the modular controller, it doesn't play music. Uh, but uh, so the first, the first poem, it's sort of the whole thing is bookended by uh, two poems called DreamPad. The first one is more about the modular controller thing. So I'll start with, uh, with that one. The last one is about the, the pillow. <laughs> um, trying to get them to pay me for <laughs> advertising. It's not working. Okay, DreamPad. It's this calendar I've dislodged and am playing, like a simple music grid controller. It's the past, plus all I've sleep-talked and confused with what took place, and it starts out with a pulse of light click-tracking across time and space. I gather up some days and make a living beat to layer over. Then the grid populates as memory, which has reverb, and you best believe it has attack. Myself, age eight, coming back from a vacation that my mother and stepfather had themselves dreamed up, heading in the same direction for the last time, and I've got a salamander hidden in my hand. I want to make a commune for the part pond things, but when I look again, it's just a smear of red, like I've wrenched down a nebula. My stepfather looking out into the highway must have had felt the same thing when he understood my mother would be leaving, some general lack over which the world comes tumbling again. Hence, a trick I like to do, I make all that isn't come to in a half-life of being dreamed, and as I do, the days patch through in a way it's hard to damp and fade. Strange, though, my remixing's not my stepfather getting clean, or my mother finally getting to live beside the Atlantic. 
I feel it in my hand sometimes, like a rubber band has tightened in my wrist, but I play better than I once did the older that I do. I miss something that made my life. Um, when my mom uh, bought a new car a couple years ago, they had somebody called a delivery specialist. I don't know if you guys have uh, come into contact with it's somebody whose job is to is to make sure when you're getting when you buy a car they sort of take take you through the car for like two hours and it's just this disorienting <laughs> like I don't know how you would re remember any of it um, but uh, a poem came out of it and I, it's called uh, there is a delivery specialist <laughs> we were standing on the outside of what was coming trouble is so was what was coming. <laughs> Conveniences gushed in until they were unintelligible, as if we tried to avoid drowning by flailing into deeper water. It used to be you could go a generation and still know where your music was kept. Now, my music seems to spy on me and hide every time I turn around. Car makers wanted to win each of us by leaving nobody's wants unmet. TV makers desired a papaya you could pick right from the screen. Pen makers wanted a pen you could twist so many times you couldn't then find your way out of it. <laughs> One twist and this kind of heaven opens. Some call it heaven. I call it a waiting room made of spares. Still, the salesman sometimes right. It's nice to have your lights dim for 30 seconds to give you a head start walking in the dark, as if you needed it. Please, when it all goes out, as in the trees, the sky, the house, please. Um, there's a, a great... Uh, work of, of uh, cinematic achievement that was made in the 80s um, called uh, Out for Justice starring Steven Seagal uh, and there's a scene where he goes into the uh, into the bar and wants what Steven Seagal always wants in the 80s which is information <laughs> uh, and he has to rough some people up to get it and he there's a scene that, that I remember seeing, I don't know why it stuck with me he throws somebody into a phone booth. He just kind of like, he just kind of knocks him into a phone booth. And I remember looking it up on IMDb, uh, and the credit was Phone Booth Man. That was the guy's credit. So I wrote a poem called Phone Booth Man. <laughs> kind of a fictionalized uh, account of what this, this person was, was actually uh, alive, but with some, some magic twist to it. Okay, so Phone Booth Man. Um, Hard to know exactly when he started training at our gym. It was as if we held up a UV light and he walked out of the ambient hues from a darkness that we didn't know was there and couldn't find if we wanted. He was memorable for his odd introduction. I was a ketoed into a phone booth by Steven Seagal on the set of the movie Out for Justice, and when somebody finally opened it, 20 years had passed, and here I am. I'd hold pads for him. No pop to his punches, no torque on his kicks, I had to fake the force of his ad hoc Muay Thai. He had a general look of farm strength, but something was not quite firing its cylinder. There was something wrong at the center. One day he approached me. I saw that wrist lock, that's a keto type stuff. He was panting. Sweat stains were living shadows on him. I learned some in college, I told him while unwrapping my hands. When I sparred with Phone Booth Man, I felt myself suddenly dodging and fainting, tooling him up as if he'd suddenly been slowed down on tape in front of me and I could pick out smaller slices of time. I told him, stay down. Months passed. Then one day he told me Jimmy's Corner was putting a plaque up in his honor. 
He said there'd be a government donation, and Seagal would even make an appearance. So I went. The owner jo joked that phone booth man could now make all the collect calls he wanted. But Seagal was recording a fusion rock album in, Japan, in Milan. The local reporter hit on a waitress. A waiter spoke about his surprise when phone booth man finally exited. I assumed it was a dummy the production company left. It was a person. Ah, phone booth man was training for Seagal, I remember thinking. I watched his odd and stammering acceptance of a novelty check. Then people asked him what it was like to be in there all that time while he sat by the jukebox blurring rock ballads. Now, more years passed. A ligament tear straight ensnared me. One semi-professional fight to my name to a scrambler simply named Lights Out. There were screws in my proximal phalange as if I'd been wedded to a big factory that only made gears. Phone booth man called me. We met at the place we met at, staring into the options. People ask me about that lost time, and the only way to explain it is like when you lose track of a day, then look at your watch. Well, think, years. He was aging fast, as if his body was paying interest for what had gone down, like he was spending all of his hours on credit. Look at this botched Botox and these bad plugs. Well, that didn't change much. Look at the way my face seems to be saying the good beer's been wanted and it's been drunk. He paused for what seemed like a holocene of minutes. I want you to hip toss me back into the booth. I know you can do it because you did it before. It needs to be strong, a good clean throw. You think any of these jabonis can do it? You think they know shit? When he said that, I felt a pain in my knee spread upwards and downwards in equal measure. There were blots in his eye revolving like planets. He waited while, in the restroom, I watched the skin on my knuckles flap under the blow dry. Like one of those YouTube clips slowed down of some KO that makes a person seem more water than flesh, more wave than particulate. I opened and closed my hand. A feeling came up as if from the darkness of a glove. Back outside, I sat while fried rice rained down and all the time that had passed since I first met him in his cup tea. I squinted and my head was tilting suddenly. I was actually seeing phone booth man. <laughs> okay, maybe I'll just read one more. Um, yeah, okay. Um, I'll read one that I wrote uh, last week. It's about the, the seaweed <laughs> in Robin Lake, uh, which is kind of disturbing to my city nature. Uh, so this is called uh, uh, There's a Cool That August Keeps. You have to stand in seaweed in a lake in a town that happens quickly and sink down beneath the gossip of the currents where the clams just haven't spoken yet and all that's left is root or sand or stone. When your legs are halved by seaweed, they're no longer your own. This last half-frozen bit of December, summer won't say it is. How all seems so bright and visible. The town has stories. They reach down and pass sugars to each other. Otherwise, it's just some wood collapsed and filled with the holes of well-meaning intentions. I was told something that I should believe. And it was clear, and that meant true. Often, someone died for it. But it had a seaweed life and carried what it wasn't. All that we said we'd never do, but then we did. I wonder what would happen if you knew how cool and how it really was a mercy while the flowers were out. Uh, thanks. Mm. So, um, yes, yeah, so we'll take a little break now, and I think I'm going to turn the music up. <laughs> and then.
Oh. <laughs> CD is done. Oh, darn. Okay. Well, anyways, I'll, I'll let you know when 10 minutes has passed. Um, but thanks, thanks, Michael and Jeff. And I just wanted to remind everyone that there are, there's books up here, so come take a look and, uh, and maybe you could chat with the, the authors, um, maybe get them to sign, sign their book. So we'll come back in 10 minutes. Thanks. And you just heard Jeff Latosik uh, uh, and his uh, reading as part of a four-reading event uh, that was held on August 20th at Novel Idea Bookstore. I just want to let you know you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And my name's Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. Let's go ahead and jump back into the August 20th reading, again, held at Novel Idea Bookstore and emceed by Alison Castiles. Up next in it, here is Katrina Wright. And um, I'm just going to now do this exchange. If you yeah, just put these books over here to indicate that we're, we will now be hearing from Katrina Wright. And um, Katrina is the author of um, the poetry collection, Table Manners. Um, through Buchel Press 2017 and she has a forthcoming book of short stories called Difficult People through Nightwood Editions. Um, she is the poetry editor of the Puritan and a co-editor of Desert, Pre Desert Pets Press. It's supposed to be a time twister. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Alright, well thank you so much for having me. This is the first time I've ever read in Kingston, so Thank you for coming. Uh, so I'm going to read two newer poems and then a couple poems from uh, Table Manners. Uh, so I was having a discussion earlier today with uh, our lovely host uh, about horrible apartments I have lived in in Toronto. Uh, so this is one of those horrible apartments. So this poem is called Apprenticeship. I lived in a tilted apartment that smelled like a hamster cage, like prawn sweat, like burning electronics. Mice scrambled through the walls and nibbled wilting black bows off my underpants. Drunks fucked and parched snatches of dirty talk in the gravel below my window, then pissed their urinary tract infections away on my rusted bike. <laughs> my rejections filled a shoebox, a drawer, a steamer trunk, a closet, a spooky, poorly ventilated panic room jutting from the kitchen. Winters, three space heaters sputtered and threatened inferno. Summers, heat smothered the dreams I whispered to Sylvia Plath, my convalescing prickly pear. I drank pickle juice and whiskey. The cast iron skillet memorized all my meals. I recited poems and paced the creek. I wake to sleep, reside quietly in a pink rhombus, scattering blue poison pellets in the cupboards. I was still new to poetry, not yet burdened by its blood feuds. When I touched a word, it lit up. And I was a kid pressing every button in the elevator. <laughs> and when the destinations dimmed, grew remote and dark and terrifying, I pressed them again harder. <laughs> it's hard to remember winter, given that I've been extremely hot for months on end. But it was once winter, and I wrote this poem called Seasonal Affective Disorder. <laughs> Although it's in Florida, so it's also hot. But anyway, seasonal affective disorder. I answer winter with Florida. Blue moon beer mosas, swamp pontoon rides, fishy pelican breath. As good a place as any to drink myself to death. 
Clouds piss themselves, rain slamming mint and lilac motels, palms, plastic surgery billboards asking, are your cups half empty? Fearing falling coconuts, I pull over and watch two gators make tender minimalistic love in a ditch. <laughs> I imagine my skin thickening to gator hide, as good a gamble as any to hide from the future to make my life continuous prologue. Hibiscus open their dumb, fuchsia throats the humidity. Hungover, I eat cold noodles out of a styrofoam clam. I stroll on damp, gritty sand, picturing the melancholy and mystical sex lives inside those rainbow sherbet houses, precarious on stilts. Veering between the drunks blasting beer in truck country and the drunker drunks blasting breakup country, I step on something sharp, a clamshell or part of one, ridged blush cream orange tinged with blood, as good a sunset. All right, I will now read two poems uh, from Table Manners. As you might imagine from the title, it is a collection of poems about food. Uh, so my first poem that I'm going to read here is about a condition called pica, which you may be familiar with. Uh, it's a condition in which you are compelled to eat things that are not food. So it frequently happens with pregnant women. They are missing some sort of vital nutrient, and they want to eat dirt or various things uh, that are not generally considered to be food. So here's a poem called Magpie. The woman who eats tar lives next to the woman who eats detergent, who lives next to the woman who eats dirt. When they carve me open, they'll find bolts, screws, and fine red potter's clay. My baby is half ashes, half cornstarch, half chalk. In the back garden, I use both hands to shovel the soil in, tender earthworms tickling my tonsils, snail shells scraping my tongue. The woman who eats paint chips lives next to the woman who eats pebbles, who lives next to the woman who eats wool. I'm not one of those monogamists who swoons imagining the heft of her favorite stationery. I am as happy wolfing down cream cardstock as I am nibbling gemstone sparkle tissue paper. Ever since I tore my mouth lock off, I've been binging like a magpie on every glint and texture. The woman who eats mucus lives next to the woman who eats lipstick, who lives next to the woman who eats bottle caps. Let the tyrants stomp through their kitchens, slapping dazed sous chefs with steaks. Let them caress the garlic press and lemon zester. I'm not interested in stoves, those great civilizers. I'm not interested in marinate, broil, bake, just pluck me a couple of silver nostril hairs, the coarser the better, and I'll be on my way. Um, and I cannot write a collection of poetry about food without writing a poem about Yelp. So this poem is called Yelp Help. That pub is a bog-standard old man boozer. The stools are unswivelable, the music a classic rock slop bucket. The taps are busted, rusted, gunked so bad, the beer tastes like cream of cauliflower soup. <laughs> the bartender is a cat and a bounder, that is to say, cute. <laughs> he has a tattoo on his left shoulder of me at age two, my new tiara slipping off my new head. I beg you, go anywhere else instead. <laughs> that bar is mason jars and noise. The boys are all feminists who adore porn and play ukuleles. The ladies are all burlesque dancers who love hurling and burly caber tossers. Everyone knows each other from science camp or Twitter. 
One wall is tulip petals, another bicycle petals. The shots are ample. Burps fill the air with dinner samples. They serve late night liver and onions, pots of Earl Grey tea. I've never been there. I'm afraid if I go, I'll be so comfortable, I'll never leave. That club is a saxophone solo. The phoned-in sexiness of men in velvet fedoras and women in red dresses. You can feel the air feeling you up. <laughs> Roses are sold in singles. Singles mingle with the desperation of babysitter-bought freedom. The drinks cost you a firstborn. The muted horn reminds you how formal love used to sound. That restaurant is macho chefs taunting each other and showing off their night sets. June Min works in the kitchen. He makes a mean foie gras and plum crostini. But whenever I see him, I remember how dumb I was to think loving canapes a good enough reason to marry him. That diner is a front for an all-girl gang of giggle dealers. I mean, the waitresses are dimple models who serve slices of pie a la mode with sides of MDMA. A coven of Jolines. <laughs> Each temptress smells like oven-baked bread and deviant sex. I would eat only ashes for the rest of my life if it meant I could lift one of their eyelashes on my fingertip, hold it before pursed lips. Even the garden salad at this place could clog a mammoth's arteries. Paper placemats unfold into pirate treasure maps. The plates are plastic. The glasses are plastic. The cutlery and cheese are plastic. <laughs> the plastic is an estrogen hoax. Waiters there wear name tags and gag props. Frankenstein bolts, flintstone bones, an arrow entering and exiting at the temples. It's a temple to bottom feeders and bottomless cokes, to our society's craven complacency. But if you have your heart set, I can cut you a deal. My mother and I, we own the place. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. <laughs> And you just heard Katrina Wright and her reading as part of a four readers event, uh, reading event on August 20th at Novel Idea Bookstore, again, emceed by Alison Castiles. And with her introduction, here was the final reader that evening, and here is E. Martin Nolan. All right, and so we'll be hearing from our final reader tonight. So this is E. Martin Nolan. So here we go. Just, if you give me a second, I'll just put this here. Put these over here. And um, so E. Martin Nolan is a poet, essayist, and editor. He edits interviews at the Puritan, where he's also um, published numerous essays, interviews, and blog posts. Uh, his long illustrated poem about Donald Trump, Great Again, can be found at greatagainpoem.com. He is, his nonfiction writing focuses on literature, sports, and music. His first book of poems, Still Point, was published with Invisible Publishing in fall 2017. So let's bring him up. I feel like I should add to that bio that it's not a sincere great again. <laughs> um, just put the cards on the table. All right, so I like am famous uh, amongst myself for having way too long set lists, so I'm going to try, I'm going to time myself on this one. Um, yeah, it's my first time in Kingston. I basically kind of 
tried to spur this whole reading so I could have an excuse to come out here because I've been in Toronto and it's muggy and nasty and there's too many people and so it's good to get out of it sometime. Um, so thank you all for coming out. Novel idea for putting it on. Everyone for reading and hosting and all that. Um, so I'll read from my book uh, Still Points. Uh, same publisher as Michael, so we had a little bit of a theme there. Um, same size, actually. <laughs> right? yeah. um, but before that, I'm going to read a couple other ones. Um, so this first one is... Uh, I uh, know some people who live in London, England, um, and this is something that happened to me uh, at a tube stop. At his own one tube, tube stop. The train is paused at the station. He faces the doors that linger open, intent on the train's exhaling. I didn't actually start this. <laughs> his reflection from my vantage is on the doors opposite behind him which are closed and curved such that his reflection has just two bottom halves. Both halves have briefcases. <laughs> One contains the files. The other restrains a jostling sack of baby robot turtles. He knows what he has to do. He knew. The doors close and the train moves forward. He half stumbles sideways, but only half from the train. His mind races back. The pond. The pond. They emerged, the turtles, from the very spot where thick weeds tangle beneath the dark water. They rose gleaming, spotless, lit by the waning moon. And they climbed upon his shoulder and he nested them in an Easter basket padded by a down pillow, which he set upon the mantle beside his own bust. Above a fire, he kept roaring through the night as he watched over their restless metal dreams. Each morning, he got them out. They unpiled and stirred. Each tiny cord mimics ligaments perfectly. Joint hinges tender to light pokes. Clean steel skin, reactive to touch. And each with a tiny portion of his voice <coughs> on their stainless lips, with which round when they open to speak, like the tips of fine pens. If he gathers the baby robot turtles in a large bowed silver serving tray within his sealed walk-in vault. They heatlessly weld their bodies to it, and they whisper now in his fullest voice, fuller, but tinny as if from a bugle. His lit-up face reflects as a white smudge clumsily on these instant statues. We all doubled from some angle. There are two ways up from the station we both get off at. The arrow-shaped sign near the stairs reads, Way Out. It points away, down a dark, curved hall, leading to a lift. The stairs wind stories high, and at the top open to windows to the sky. He takes his one true briefcase up the stairs, and I stop 
where the hall just starts to bend out of sight. I see as I look back him pause. The suitcase trembles. Or is that another train going by? He continues out of sight. I look back at the sign where the light really pours down. Um, so I'm going to read a couple poems about the most peaceful part place in Toronto, which is my back deck, <laughs> our back deck. Um, the people in my workshop uh, back in Toronto uh, know me as mostly just writing about this, but it was mostly a phase. Um, but it's like a very nice, peaceful place. So, so you'll hear a couple. So uh, and I like I keep a container garden here, and this is a another very realistic poem about that. I'm a god in the garden. <laughs> Every garden is Eden to me. When I want to feed in time, its tongues want to speak my name, and it's not for lack of vocab, they don't. It's because of awe and because my name is human, is bright. God's face would have killed Moses to see it, but he was denied the promise, so shit, take the chance. <laughs> Rosemary, unfrail, Likewise, thrives for a summer, moves in, grows long, clear stems, and dies flowering in the warm kitchen where Phoebe goes. It thinks it's in the tropics. Could be, still. I question too far and kill the mystery. Well past now, summer's height. Gardens a god to me. All right, so I think I have to move on. Uh, I have a bunch of poems about um, how uh, the dying ash trees of Ontario uh, started speaking to me and um, in rhymes and poems. Um, but I'm kind of still working on that, so I'll have to bring that back to Kingston for a later uh, for a later reading. Um, so this is my book, Still Point. It takes place in between Detroit, um, Toronto, and New Orleans. So I've got just over five minutes left. I'll try to read one poem from each city, but are there any cities that people would prefer to hear about between those three? <laughs> Detroit. How many for Detroit? Just read one for me. Toronto. <laughs> New Orleans. Oh, more, to more Toronto. Wow. <laughs> what am I going to look at? All right, so I'll read the first book. This is... Um, so I was born in Detroit, I lived in uh, New Orleans, and then I ended up in Toronto for school. So the book kind of just follows my life in a way. And I'll, uh, this is kind of a prologue, but it happens kind of after most of the rest of it. Um, it starts in Dearborn, which is the southern um, neighbor of Detroit, which is where Henry Ford moved his auto factory, so it's a big industrial. It's got a lot of stuff going on, but it's just south of the city. Leaving the Rouge Park Inn in Dearborn, and my friend's gone back for his phone. So I wait alone before we part. It's quiet. I face north towards Detroit, the city of my birth. Traffic's light. Each car is singular. The collective chirp of the crickets is loud across the border. They live in the column of dense woods growing half-wild along the Rouge River, and their invisible mass is called an orchestra and forms a cinematic unison in the night. All go that way, on the road that shadows the Rouge River through the big, empty park. 
a deserted shed by the road, buckling under its roofs, kneels into the tall grass. The woods behind it hide the river, and across the empty plain the other way, there's a row of porch lights. People didn't flee that block. That's distant evidence of human knots amid the vast open spaces. But I turn back to the half-wild woods. These trees speak to each other, are wild enough for that. They live together, holding the riverbanks in place. The branches of the rouge begin in the exurbs, then merge their green silt, sliding thickly below this canopy towards the blue Detroit. And if you ever look at a Google map image of where the Rouge River meets the Detroit River, it is very brown, meaning very blue. <laughs> um, all right, so we'll jump up to New Orleans here. Uh, so back of town would be like behind, if anyone's been to New Orleans, behind the uh, French market, um, traditionally black area town where a lot of music comes from. A lot of second line parades. Second line parade would be a parade that goes to the streets and you follow it and you get food and beer along the way and it's great. <laughs> a second line parade back of town on a sunny December afternoon. Over drained swamp, the band marches past long shotgun houses. Their horns shine uneven, evenly, duller where the metal rubs the body. Nearing the steel of the I-10 overpass, the song builds. They turn up their horns as they arrive at the melody and wail it against the interstate's underbelly. This freeway was built right through their neighborhood, <laughs> and now they make that infrastructure sing with them to transmit charged melodic waves into the cars above. The waves break through each body, through the armored riders who cannot detect the submolecular effects. For them, the city approaches or grows far. And from, the, and from the freeway, you can't see where you are. So one of the main kind of um, starts of this book was, uh, I was in New Orleans, I was doing my undergrad there when Hurricane Katrina hit. Um, and what we in New Orleans came, or uh, students that were lucky enough not to like lose other anything other than really that semester. I mean, other than almost the city, um, we kind of bitterly called it the uh, Katrina vacation. Uh, God, I'm hurricane. That's that was our that was the pun. Okay, yeah, heard the hurricane. So I spent my hurricane in Detroit um, in 2006, which is like when the bankruptcy was kind of at its worst part. So it was like not the jolliest place to be. Um, and this is uh, just a short poem about that. Displaced to Detroit for the fall semester, I half pay attention to a light course load. Dust turns over the aisle of a city bus lit by the low afternoon sun. A car stops at a red light. No one else in sight runs it. From an opening in the sidewalk, tall grasses wilt into the fall. 
Alright, so just a couple more to that. I'm going to skip over most of the, the Toronto poems mostly happened during the financial crisis. Mostly just looking at Bay Street, trying to think. I'm also skipping over all the uh, oil spill stuff because there's a long section about the uh, Gulf oil spill as well. And I'm going to come back to the porch briefly. <laughs> the afternoon of the hottest July day on record. The squirrel slides along the porch railing and eyes the low blue tub I filled of suspect dirt and a tiny handful of wildflower seeds I never watered. The squirrel is in the lower corner of the tub where nothing, not even a weed, is grown. The squirrel rolls in this rare spa, rubbing its hands, then settling in to do some scratching and repose. Then it sees me, or thinks so, it's stock still in me too. Then the tiny brain that relieves the squirrel of all but the necessary past forgets me. And it begins nibbling on a weed, unaware that any day has ever been anything but this day, this shade, this impossibly soft, cool dirt. And just very briefly, since I read the very beginning, I'll read the very end. Thank you all again. Uh, you've been a very attentive audience. Um, I'm being, this is the last section of the three-part last poem, very short. Um, once on Blue Mountain, with blue Georgian Bay in view, on a warm May afternoon in the sun, a great shadow passed over me. I thought it was a hang glider. Massive wings, black tipped. You could hear the wings beat a real low felt noise. American white pelican, up from Florida on your way to the breeding grounds above Superior. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you. <laughs> And just quickly, I wanted to thank everyone for coming out and being such an um, attentive audience. And um, thanks to Noble Idea, and thanks to Bruce, and, uh, and uh, again, thanks to all of you. And uh, a reminder, come and buy these books. <laughs> everyone should buy one or two books. <laughs> and, um, and, and talk to the, the readers as well and, and get them to sign their, their work. All right, thanks, everyone. Mm. Have a good night. And you just heard E. Martin uh, Nolan and his reading, uh, The Last, uh, as part of a four-reader reading event uh, that was held on August 20th at Novel Idea Bookstore, emceed by Allison Castiles. And as we're very close now to the second hour of today's show, I'd like to thank you for having tuned in to this first hour today. And just a heads up that each hour of each show, uh, today's as well, will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Again, thanks for tuning in to the first hour. Right after these, uh, you'll catch me just after 5 o'clock. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. 
I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. I'm David Suzuki. The average lunch or dinner travels 2,400 kilometers to get to your table. Eating local means combating global warming. The future is on your table. Eat your way to a healthier planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org. Folk everything. Every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine motorbike. Walk Home is one of the services provided to you by the Alma Mater Society at Queen's University. Walk Home is a completely confidential and anonymous service where students will pick you up and walk you to any location within our extensive boundaries. We are located in the Lower Cayley of the John Deutsch University Centre. You can request a walk by dropping by the kiosk or by calling 613-533-9255 during our hours of operation. We are open every night from dusk till 2am, Sunday to Wednesday, or till 3am from Thursday to Saturday. During exam season, we are open until 4am. Last year, we completed over 10,000 walks, walking the equivalent distance of crossing the width of Canada and back. So whether you're feeling unsafe, want someone to walk with after a night at the library, or if you're more comfortable walking downtown with someone, call Walk Home. If you have any questions about the service, please feel free to contact us by calling 613-533-9255 or by emailing walkhome at ams.queensview.ca. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the campus and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. Spare some cash for CFRC? CFRC's 13th Annual Funding Drive is happening from November 2nd through 9th, 2018, and we need your support. Follow us on social media, tune in daily, and visit CFRC.ca to find out more about how you can donate and learn all about the fun events we're running to raise money. Contact business at CFRC.ca if you'd like to become a sponsor. I'm David Suzuki. Cut your heat and energy use by 10% and you'll be making a real difference combating global warming. The future is in your hands. Shrink your footprint, grow your wallet, cool the planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org. And welcome back uh, to the second hour of today's show. It is now 5 o'clock and you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. Uh, we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up in this second hour, you'll hear a reading at the September 22nd uh, 
100,000 Poets for Change event in Kingston that uh, uh, will consume much of this show for the next few weeks. Uh, and in it, uh, this afternoon, you will hear Tammy Selena Tuck with Greg Jones on guitar reading her dedication poem to Gord Downey. Uh, following that, you'll hear readings by Marilyn Simons and Wayne Grady at the September 6th uh, double launch of their books, uh, Refuge and Up From Freedom, and that was held at the Davies Lounge of the Grand Theater. This verse, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So up first this hour, again, from uh, this will be uh, the first of what will include 23 other readings as well as four musical performances at the September 22nd Kingston Inclusion in the Global 100,000 Poets for Change event. Uh, held here at the Spire, uh, you will hear uh, the first poem I'll air from it, uh, Tammy Selena Tuck's poem that was written as a tribute to Gord Downey. And uh, I'm going to introduce it here on the show with her words in this way. Uh, she wanted to include her, and I quote, uh, hello and a virtual long hug and a wish for the beginnings of peace and shared compassion to all those realizing the reality of the one year passing this coming week since our global loss of Mr. Gord Downey. The poem was written and read the evening uh, of the event. Uh, those are my words here, uh, by its author, Tammy Selena Tuck, and now back to hers, and accompanied by Greg Jones on guitar as an honor to Gord and a subtle call for action for truth and reconciliation as one of Gord's legacies. Uh, the message is hoping to touch hearts and ease the pain as we remember a fallen legend, and that ends her quote. So here, uh, following my introduction to them that evening, here are Greg Jones, uh, with Greg Jones on guitar, here is Selena Tuck and her poem called Lounges of Their Gaze. Up next, and this will be the final uh, presentation reading before the break. Tammy Selena Tuck, uh, the author of Lounges of Their Gaze, uh, will read a tribute to Gord Downey and how she felt he lived and loved his life. The poem brings a message uh, through some of Gord's legacies on our ability of uh, individual stewardship and continuing the conversation however we can to do something to share and learn about the history of indigenous residential school systems and truth and reconciliation. Tammy was introduced to public narration of poetry by Bob McKenzie, who narrated her poem for the first time in public on July 20th in 2018. Tammy has worked as a registered nurse for over 15 years. She has helped organize uh, several events, helped or organize several events for over 12 years in Kingston to raise monies for Alzheimer's Society, Diabetes, uh, Diabetes Canada, Boys and Girls Club, Kingston Homeless Shelter, and most recently the Downey Windjack Fund and Queen's Cancer Research as organizer for the Gord Downey Tribute Show. The poem was written while Tammy cared for her father in hospital and the evening Gord 
past. Uh, as she narrates lounges of their gaze, uh, guitarist Greg, uh, Craig Jones uh, will be accompanying her. And Craig Jones has been playing and singing and leading bands in Kingston since moving here in 1986 to pursue a master's degree in political science. He stayed to do a PhD in international political economy and when not teaching at Queens or playing with Doug Greensberry and numerous others, he teaches, teaches politics at Queens, walks his dog, teaches music in his home, plays with his granddaughter, and travels with his award-winning travel writer wife in their class B RV. His Motown cover band, Heatwave, is mounting a big fundraising event at Blue Martini on the afternoon of Sunday, November 18th from 12 to 5 p.m. to raise money for KGH's cancer unit and the pediatric ICU. He fronts uh, the 20th Century Jazz Band Alternate Fridays at Monty's in Tiernanoff, 7 p.m. start. Let's bring up Tammy and Craig. Remember by the lounges of their gaze. 
Selena Tuck and her reading of her Gord Downey dedication poem called Lounges of Their Gaze uh, with the accompaniment of uh, Craig Jones on guitar. Again, this was held at the September 22nd Kingston 100,000 Poets for Change event held at the Spire. Let's do this uh, quickly for just a minute and I'll be right back. I mean, if there's a listener-supported radio station... It means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, but a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become... Uh, human, you know, that's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system.
And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are, again, located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Up next, and this will take us, uh, well... Fairly close to the end of the hour, uh, leaving me enough time uh, to share a few upcoming events and one call that's about ready to expire. But leading up to that, let's go ahead and jump into this. Uh, You'll hear readings by Marilyn Simons and Wayne Grady at uh, the September 6th double launch of their books uh, called Refuge and Up From Freedom. And... uh, I do have to apologize as I was recording this. My apologies to Wayne and I guess those of you out there listening uh, for an omission of about, uh, I'm guessing, maybe two minutes of his reading when the recorder stopped. And I frantically attempted to quickly insert new batteries into it. I attempted to edit that glitch as best I could but wanted to point out there there. You'll hear here a small gap in what we heard in the reading that evening. So, as best I could, here are, again, Marilyn uh, Simons and Wayne Grady. So, I'm just going to say a couple of words, and then Wayne's going to introduce me. And I'm going to read, and then I'm going to introduce Wayne, and he's going to read. So it's, 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 it's such a pleasure to see everybody here tonight, uh, so many friends and, and colleagues. Um, in fact, in some ways, writing these books is just an excuse to have a party. <laughs> That's why we do it so often. <laughs> I don't know where, where Oscar went. Where did Oscar go? Oh, there he is. I want to thank Oscar. Yay, Oscar. that fabulous bookstore novel idea and for supporting writers so much and for always you know supporting us in in our book launches and the wonderful Joanna all the food is hers it's fantastic they are they are an amazing team they should they should get the keys to the city But there's so many people to thank. I want to thank the beta readers. I had beta readers for this book, 10 of them, and some of them are here. And uh, they read the, they aren't beta. They're definitely alpha. (laughs) But the manuscript was beta. It was the next to the last draft. And they were incredibly helpful. Um, But there's so many people here who make it possible for us to write, like Mark Siemens from Altair, you know, who keeps our computers going, and Tim Everdell from Cory Pharmacy, who uh, (coughs) keeps me breathing, Uh, and and, and, uh, Dr. A, who my my Burmese pronunciation instructor. But I think it's safe to say that neither of us could have written these books without the support of this entire community. So I think that really it takes a city to write a book. So thank you, all of you. Give yourselves a hand. No, you don't. 
Um, so I'm going to introduce Marilyn, and she's going to read for a while. Um, I hope my introduction isn't longer than her reading. So Marilyn is the most dedicated, concentrated, and pro prolific writer I know. She has written more than 20 books, starting with works of practical nonfiction in the 1980s, through one of the first and surely most popular works of creative nonfiction, The Convict Lover, as well as the internationally acclaimed The Lion in the Room Next Door and The Holding. Her two previous books, The Paradise Project, a collection of flash fiction published by the Hellbox Press here in Kingston, and the book... Yes. And the book she wrote about writing The Paradise Project, Gutenberg's Fingerprint, in which she, she explores the paradigm shift that we currently ex are experiencing between the world of print and the world of digital text. They, they have received much praise, and last year she made more than 30 public appearances uh, reading from and talking about the books and, and the issues that they explore. Since last year, she has published another novel, Refuge, about which I will say a, a bit more in, in a few minutes, uh, in two minutes. Uh, <laughs> and she is hard at work on yet another novel about, about Mexico, uh, and, and I know of at least two other projects she, is on, she has on the back burner. And this week alone, she has written three blogs. Uh, the only thing that I have written this week is this in introduction. <laughs> and I'm struggling with that. Uh, as many of you know, it was Marilyn who started Kingston Writers Fest, now an annual book festival that brings more than 60 writers to Kingston at the end of each September. She also sat for seven years on the board of directors of, of McGill Queens University Press, and for 10 years co-wrote with her husband <laughs> the, uh, the popular, the very popular about books column for the Whig Standard. Uh, she now writes a bi-monthly blog about books called Books Up Unpacked, to which all of you may subscribe. And she has taught creative writing at the University of British Columbia and Quantum University, as well as at Sage Hill Writing Experience in Saskatchewan. So she is a well-traveled, well-recognized figure in Canadian letters. Marilyn wrote this this morning. But we are here tonight, today, to celebrate her new novel, Refuge, published this month and already being translated for publication in Germany, about which I am insanely jealous. <laughs> Refuge is, is what she calls her NAFTA novel, as it takes place in Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And like NAFTA, talks about the novel will be long and eventful. Not <laughs> so contentious. Unlike NAFTA, they will, they will also be friendly and productive. <laughs> in Refuge, we follow the life of Cassandra McCallum from her birth in Nublis, just a, few, a bit north of here, in 1905, to Mexico City in the 1920s, where she becomes the personal nurse of Frida Kahlo, to New York City in the 1930s, where she assists Dr. Maurice Brody 
in his desperate search for an effective polio vaccine, and to Montreal, where she tries to convince doctors at the Children's Memorial Hospital there that infants actually do feel pain and therefore need to be anesthetized uh, during operations. These sweeping movements uh, battered Cassandra, but they also toughen her, which is fortunate because her personal life is as turbulent as the century. The mass uprooting caused by the conga line of wars, I like that phrase, the conga line of wars, that was the 20th century, created huge populations of refugees and asylum seekers that are still seeking asylum today. When Cassandra is approached by a young woman asking for her for asylum, she is forced to confront her own past, to reach through the toughness she has acquired at such heavy cost, and to ask the question of herself that we in the 21st century must ask ourselves now. To whom do we give sanctuary? To whom do we owe sanctuary? And do we have the moral right to refuse it? Refuge is therefore a novel about the 20th century, but it is undeniably a novel for the 21st. Please welcome Marilyn Simons. You're right, I'm, I'm going to read for a shorter time than <laughs> Thank you, Wayne. That, uh, that was really lovely, and now I don't have to set up, set up the reading, except to say that um, one of the reviews for this book started out with, with something that I found quite astonishing. It said, there are really only two kinds of stories uh, in literature, all of literature. A person sets off on a quest, or a stranger comes to town. Well, my book is A Stranger Comes to Town. Wayne's book is Someone Sets Off on a Quest. So you have, you have all of literature here tonight. Um, so yeah, so Wayne set it up so well, and since I don't have a huge amount of voice, I am going to just dive right in, and I'm going to read um, <clears throat> from the beginning uh, of Refuge. And, and the book is told uh, primarily, in uh, entirely really, in the voice of Cassandra McCallum in the first person, and the first person sections no. The, the, the first person sections alternate with third person sections, which are uh, her memories, uh, us going back into her memory. So it begins in, in the first person. You can't lie to me. Oh, people have tried all the usual prevarications, and some they make up just for me. Take a picture and there's a chance you'll get away with it. But even then, more often than not, I'll feel that flutter in my gut, that shiver behind my eyelids when I spot a lie penciled on a face, and the words will come spilling out of my mouth before I have a chance to think them. That's not the truth. Not that it's ever done me much good. What's the point of knowing every time someone's trying to put one over on you? It's like having the gift of seeing flatulence. It shows you something you already suspect, something you don't want to know too much about. That's what I'm thinking as I sit here in the veranda of my cabin, watching the girl row across the narrow moat of water that separates my small island from the farm where I was born. 
a gray moth with a smudge of rust on its nether parts, moves slowly across the sagging screen in the opposite direction. I squint past it into the distance and wonder just what kind of lies this young woman will try on me. Because if I'm sure of one thing after 96 years, it's that I've pretty much heard them all. The only one who can lie to me is me. A moment of weakness made me spell out the directions to the island. Loneliness, the old woman's curse. Well, I may be old and weak, but I'm not entirely stupid, not yet. Curious, I'll admit to that. The girl looks ordinary enough, not like a real estate agent or a social worker or a thug. That's one good thing, or three, depending on how you count. She's tidy. She's pulling the old rowboat up on the rocks pretty much where I like it. Scrawny, though, doesn't block much of the view. She's got her hair pulled up into a ponytail like I used to wear in the 50s. Looks like a boy in those blue jeans, no hips. But the shirt is so tight I can see her little breasts round and high as suction cups. She takes nothing from the boat, no suitcase. So she doesn't intend to stay. Another good thing. Smaller, oh, that hump on her back is a day pack. Whatever she has for me is tucked inside. Smaller than an iron lung, bigger than a tin of salve. A game we used to play. I shuffle my chair back into the shadows. The veranda is screened in and heaped with junk, oars, tripods, winter boots, coats, things I've been meaning to get rid of. Nowhere to sit, but that doesn't matter so long as I can wheel myself through breaks in the debris to my favorite lookouts. One at the far end with a view of the lake, and this one by the screen door, where I can see the woods that shield the lake from the farmhouse, where I watch for strangers coming up the path. Halfway along, she stops, shifts the day pack to her other shoulder, and carries on. So, small but heavy, heavy as the weight of memory that holds me here. In the stillness of the morning, the frogs call their dire warnings, their hoarse seductions. I study the girl as she struggles with her load up the rocky slope. How weak she looks, how flimsy a product of her time. But I'm not fooled. She's come to invade my island, plunder my privacy. I thought I'd be safe here, this place that's almost as much a backwater as it was when my grandfather came to minister to the settlers of New Bliss, a village tucked in the back of beyond. The lake, my father's enticement to buy the place, is hidden out of sight behind the old stone house across a rough pasture and the thin strip of woodland my father left wild along the shore to shade the cows when they came to drink. The lake itself is almost perfectly round, an indentation in the limestone made by a meteor, a star stone fallen from the sky, as my father liked to say. As on one side, a rocky promontory, and off the tip, as if in exclamation, this narrow mound of rock and trees where I live in my small cabin, almost invisible, hard to reach. And I, silly old woman, have invited this girl in. I wheel about as if to retreat inside, but what's the use? 
There's nowhere anymore to hide. Papa, come look. She pulled on the sleeve of his old pad plaid coat and he'd laugh, put down his tools and run with her to the island. The summer she turned 10, she built a hut there, using boards from a collapsed blind where her father used to crouch for hours, observing the nesting behavior of a pair of American widgeons. She nailed the cracked and splitting boards to a stand of five spindly cedars, stripping the bottom branches to use as thatch for a roof to keep up the worst of the weather. The weight of winter would break through her construction, and every spring she'd remake the hut sweeping out the drifts of leaves and the rotting nests, carpeting the earth with fresh boughs, adding boards to widen the walls and raise the roof as she grew. This is where she brought her lame and wounded, the blue jay with the broken wing, the nest of mouse pups abandoned by their mother, the barn cat that was half blind. She attached wire cages to the outside of the hut, carved splints and knotted slings, Every morning, she'd row herself across the strait with a muslin bag at her feet, bulging with table scraps, worms, and crickets, various seeds. At the end of the day, she could scarcely pull herself away from the frail and broken creatures she'd rescued. She was convinced she could hear them calling to her in the night, their voices faint through the windows slammed shut by May against the dark. Being the youngest of the McCallum's sisters was both her torment and her saving grace. Rarely noticed, she was seldom missed. She accumulated small comforts on the island, a blanket, a plate, a cup, a candle. She took to keeping an apple or two, a heel of bread, a rind of cheese tied in a cloth that hung from a branch inside her hut. No one seemed to care how long she stayed away, except once late in August, when the sky darkened without warning and a wind rose up, whipping Papa's voice to ragged snatches through the trees. Stay where you are, he yelled when she came to the water's edge. He stood tall as a prophet in his flapping greatcoat, his fist raised in the air, silhouetted in a sudden flash of white against the towering, swaying spruce. They stood rooted to their opposite shores, peering at the water that heaved between them, the clouds surging above, swallows tumbling through the air. Then the storm bore down in earnest and he waved her back into the trees. For hours she crouched in her hut, wrapped in a ragged quilt, thunder growling all around, erupting now and then in outrage, the gaps in the boards pulsing with wild light, then snapping back to blackness. Eventually she slept, dreaming strange and restless dreams of faces she had never seen, places she had never been. She woke at last in the quiet dark to Papa bending over her, whispering her name, lifting her up off the boughs, damp beneath her cheek, the needles shifting against her skin like small snakes licking their tongues in the curled shell of her ear. All my life that dream has haunted me. Maybe it was a prophecy that I would live as long as Methuselah, wait on this small island for a young supplicant to row across the water, struggle up the path bearing her own brand of snake oil. A young woman who claims to be flesh of my flesh. 
family at this late date after I have outlived them all. So terrifying to read and so great to read from the book and uh, that book was 14 years from idea to what it is now so it's been a very very long path as, as some of you know so now it's my turn to introduce Wayne I promise to keep you every bit as long <laughs> and you know the joke in our house, and it's really been no joke, is that I'm the slow writer and Wayne's the productive whiz. And which is true. He started out writing fiction. You may not know this, but that's how he started, was writing fiction. Before I met him, I knew him from his short stories that he published in Saturday Night Magazine. He also wrote a novel in his 20s, one that has remained he says, thankfully, in his bottom drawer. Even I am not allowed to read it. To support his young family, though, he moved away from fiction and turned to journalism and became one of Canada's top environmental reporters. He followed scientists in the Arctic and wrote one of the first books on climate change, The Quiet Limit of the World, which still stands up today, uh, what, 24 years after it was published. He traveled to China and Patagonia with a team of archaeologists and wrote cutting-edge books on dinosaurs. He wrote uh, books on the Great Lakes, on coyotes and vultures, and on the wild creatures in our cities. With David Suzuki, he wrote Tree, a biography, which has been published in countries all around the world. And in between his own books, which are Legion, he edited 13 anthologies of the work of others including the Penguin Book of Short Stories, and through all this, he kept his fictional chops alive by translating novels from French to English, 16 of them, and in fact, he has one coming out this fall called... <laughs> in English or French? In English. The Accidental Education of Jerome Lupien. The Accidental Education of Jerome Lupien. Lupien. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but finally, he returned to his first love fiction, and as you probably know, in 2013, he published Emancipation Day, which was long listed for the Gillard and won the first novel award. Uh, Emancipation Day in Canada, you may or may not know, is August 1st, which coincidentally is Wayne's birthday, and his first novel was published on Emancipation Day of the year that he turned 65. So he won the first novel award in the same year that he became a senior citizen. <laughs> Emancipation Day was based on the story of his father, a black man who was born so light-skinned that he could pass for white, a truth that Wayne discovered in his 50s. Now, in 2018, he's released Up From Freedom, a story based on a real trial in which his great-great-great-grandfather, a black man, was declared legally white. And I have to say, in my view, the trial scene in this book is, is every match for To Kill a Mockingbird. In writing about his own family, Wayne writes about issues that are at the heart of today's discussion about race. 
He does this through the brilliant character of a former slave owner, Virgil Moody, and Tamsi, a woman based on his many greats grandmother and who opens this white man's eyes. Wayne takes these two people on a quest that I guarantee will change forever the way you see the color of a person's skin. I give you Wayne Grady. Thank you. It's always scary trying to live up to your introductions. <laughs> can everyone hear this? Yeah, Is it working? I hope I can see. I hope I can see this. My, I don't know. I'm apparently developing cataracts. Ah, that's a great idea. Oh, I have. A, I have one of those. Now I got this. No, 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 no. I'll handle it. I'll handle it. No, it's okay. I think I can do this. Is this too distracting? Uh, it's better. It's way better than see. Yeah. Okay. So, as Marilyn said, this is a quest novel. I didn't really think of that of it that way when I was writing it, but there is a quest in it. The main character travels throughout the whole novel looking for something. So I guess that's a quest, right? Um, and he's a, his name is Virgil Moody. He's a former. Um, uh, he's a, his father was a slave owner in Georgia. He vows never to own slaves, not to be like his father, and moves to Texas, uh, where he starts a ranch, and guess what, ends up owning slaves. Uh, he, but he, uh, he, in order to, uh, I guess, atone for that, he sets up, when, when some of, uh, some, someone runs away in the book and he goes to, to find them. I don't want to tell you too much about that. Uh, so, but in the course of his looking for this person who has run away, he, he meets uh, a woman named Tamsi, a black woman, a former slave who's run away, herself has run away from slavery in, in uh, South Carolina. And uh, by the, by the, when, about halfway through the novel, he meets her. He, he, then, he by then, is, uh, he owns a, a keelboat. He's, he's transporting slaves across, the runaway slaves across the Ohio River into Indiana, where theoretically they are free, at least freer than they were in Kentucky. Uh, and so I'm going to read a section. He meets Tamsi, and they, and they become a couple. Uh, and I'm going to read this section right from the very, almost from the very first time that they meet. He, he's, uh, he meets her, he's standing on his boat, uh, Tamsi and her son Leeson and her other two children, Granville and uh, uh, Sabatha, uh, come up the river running away from a place called New Harmony. Uh, and that, and he's, and he hears them. He's, he, he goes over and speaks to them, and they, and he invites them onto his boat. And I'm going, and I'm going to read now from that part where he has invited them onto his boat. Whenever he knew he was going to be in one place for more than a day or two, Moody set up the pelican. That's the name of the boat, the pelican. The pelican is, is to kill a pelican, not to kill a mockingbird. <laughs> Moody set up the, uh, the pelican's foredeck as a place to sit. He set out an easy chair for reading and a table and a second chair for working and eating, two coal oil lamps on the table. He even threw a small rug on the deck beside the hatch cover, mostly to hide the blood stain. The wood stove was already on the deck, tied down and sitting on a pallet of sand. 
When it rained, he'd thrown a tarpaulin over the stove and moved everything else into the cabin. But now the rain had stopped, he had it all in place again. He called it his parlor deck. He set out extra chairs and helped Leeson and Granville pitch the tarpaulin as a tent on the ground beside the jetty. He lent them some blankets to wrap themselves in while their clothes dried by the stove. And when they were ready, they came, onto, they came up onto the parlor deck. They, 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 there was a lake close by, and the track ended at it, and a meadow with a fire pit where rapites used to smoke fish. I know that lake, said Moody. I told Leeson I didn't know what the hurry was. Once we lost the track, James couldn't follow us. We didn't know where, he wa where we was, I said to Leeson. So I said to him, take the others and push on. I'll stay here and wait for James. Leeson said he'd go to the lake and wait three days, then I had to come. I couldn't think of James being taken back into slavery. If I went on without him, it's like I sending him downriver myself. I can't do that. Every step I take into these woods without him be like death to me. Now, all my life I'd be thinking, him back, thinking of him back there somewhere looking for me. Why did you leave New Harmony, Moody asked her. That's what I'm telling you, she said. But I have to go on before I go back. All right, this is my story, she said. Let it come, let it go. All right. I told Leeson, go up, on the, uh, go up to the lake and figure out how to get around it. I'll be alone. Granville wanted to stay with me, bless the child, but I sent him too, saying, Brer Moses need him. That was Leeson. And Sarah and Sabbatha went, and I was alone. I had some squirrel meat and a saddle blanket and Jesse, my horse, there were blackberries down by the riverbank and fresh water. I wished I had a pot to boil water in. I was tired of roasted punk roots, but I didn't even have a knife. We left so fast. Maybe James would have one, and some cornmeal, and a roasted beef, and a kettle, and some tea. She paused. Moody didn't want to interrupt her, but he thought maybe she was saying she didn't like coffee. <laughs> would you rather have tea? He asked. No, thank you, this coffee, fine. And our father and our feather tick, James might bring that. I would make him a proper supper and we would lie down on the feather tick and he would tell me how good life was and then we would join Leeson and the others at the lake and go on to Canada. I walked up and down that track. I sat by the river and watched it go by, but it was too loud and I couldn't hear anything behind me so I run back, but there wasn't never anything behind me. It's like I was sitting in the Garden of Eden and God hadn't made Adam yet. She paused again, this time to check the oven. Biscuits ready, she said. You all want one? Moody handed around the plate of biscuits and some butter. Honey would have been good, but he didn't have any. Where were you and James married, he asked. In Louisville, she said. How many fugitives you carried on this river so far? I don't know, he said. Dozens. What happened to them? I hand them over to Solomon Cashin in Indianapolis, and he sees that they get to Canada. How? I don't know. I'm not supposed to know. She nodded. Where was I, she said. Getting married in Louisville. No, before that. Alone in the Garden of Eden. She smiled at him. You're a good listener. I'm learning to be, he said, startled. I waited until almost dark on the third day, she said. I knew he wasn't coming. There was life in the garden, but he wasn't part of it. A deer come, a fox trot up the track, a dead leaf fall from the tree I sitting against and land beside my hand. I shivered under that tree looking down that empty road, my blanket around my shoulders and I still couldn't get warm. I always cold. James a forge beside me at night. Sometimes 
If I sit in a chair he left, I feel the warmth of him in the wood. When it too dark to see, I climbed on Jezebel and let her take me to the lake. You still think James is coming? I hope he is. Do you want to go back to look for him? She was quiet a moment. No, she said, we can't go back there. Why not? Let it come, she said. Let it go. Thank you. Just heard uh, readings by Marilyn Simons and Wayne Grady at the September 6th double launch of their books, uh, Refuge and Up From Freedom. Again, this was held in uh, the Davies Lounge of the Grand Theater. There are, uh, and I did allow plenty of time because I haven't been able to really... uh, share much of upcoming events other than those the most uh, immediate uh, but uh, going to try to get down this list a little bit more uh, not enough time in the show today to really bring anything else into it so it fortunately does open up a little bit of time for me to get this information out and let's just start with the calls uh I've mentioned here and uh, other places, but uh, I believe many people know now that are tied to the lit scene that Catherine Hernandez uh, is the fall term writer in residence at uh, Queen's University and uh, is on campus on Fridays uh, for the full term uh, to meet with both students and uh, Kingston community, the members of the Kingston community as well. Uh, If you want to make an appointment with her, uh, just email her at, and this is all one word, theloudlady at gmail.com, and she'll be in touch with you. Uh, One thing that just happened in her residency, uh, a call just went out, I believe this week. She is, uh, uh, while for research for her next novel, Crosshairs, Uh, She would like to conduct confidential interviews with those who have survived a genocidal campaign. Again, if you uh, are interested in taking part in that, uh, please contact her again directly at theloudlady at gmail.com. She is the author of Scarborough, uh, which was published in 2017. Uh, shortlisted for the Toronto Book Award, Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction, Evergreen Forest of Reading Award, and Trillium Book Award. Uh, she's also the winner of the Jim Wong Chu Emerging Writers Award, and is longlisted for Canada Reads 2018, and is listed as one of the best books of 2017 by Globe and Mail. Uh, National Post, Quill and Choir, and CBC Books. So again, on both those counts, as either to visit her as the writer-in-residence or uh, to uh, participate in uh, the confidential interviews I just mentioned. So same uh, email address. 
the next one, and this is quickly expiring, call for submissions for new and emerging poets. Uh, Guernica Editions has announced the launch, uh, launch of its diversity-focused poet mentorship program. Uh, this is for emerging poets who have not yet published a full-length collection of poems. Uh, they, this is their quote. The aim of this program is to provide a mentorship opportunity to talented writers from historically marginalized communities. Two poets will be selected for a three-month mentorship program. Along with mentorship, the chosen mentees will have the opportunity to publish a full-length collection with Guernica at a later date. Must be Canadian citizens or permanent residents. Again, that deadline is October 14th, and you can get full details at www.guernica, and that's G-U-R-N-I-C-A. So www.guernicareditions.com. And then if you want to include slash poet mentorship, it should take you right to the page. Uh, There is another, excuse me, uh, call for submissions uh, I'm going to read two more. There are a number of others that I know about, but these two are uh, coming. Well, they're going to expire on or near or just after the end of the month. So let's do these. The first is the 2019 CBC Short Story Prize. Uh, the That is now open for, well, it has been open for submissions. Canadian writers can submit original unpublished short stories until October 31st. 2,500 words in length uh, can be that long. Uh, And I'm just going to give you uh, just, uh, I'm going to suggest you just go to the website. There is a submission fee of $25, uh, but there are a number of awards uh, from the Canada Council for the Arts through this. Just go to www.cbc.ca books, and then I'm sure just follow the links through that link, the sublinks, or whatever you call them, and uh, we should take you right to the short story prize. Uh, another one, this one does expire the next day, uh, uh, the call does, uh, so on November 1st. CV2 Magazine has created a new annual poetry contest exclusively for writers under the age of uh, 35. It's called the Young Buck Poetry Prize. Uh, will be awarded to the author of the best single submitted poem along with uh, $1,000 and also publication in CV2. There will also be two honorable mentions awarded. Go to this website for full details, www.contemporaryverse.com. And then the numeral two, so www.contemporaryverse2.ca, and then just follow the links. Uh, you probably throw in the words Young Buck Poetry Prize into a search. We'll probably just take you right to the page. Now, with just a few minutes left, I'm going to jump into events. There's a book launch and reading uh, that will be coming up this Tuesday night, October 16th, from 7 to 9 p.m. at Novel Idea Bookstore. And it's Kingston author Sergio Sismondo will be launching and reading from his new book, Ghost Managed Medicine, uh, published uh, in the U.K. at Mattering Press, uh, just published. And again, that will be on October 16th, Tuesday night. 
Uh, the book explores a spec, uh, spectral side of medical knowledge based in pharmaceutical industry tactics and practices. And then coming up uh, next Thursday night, October 18th from 7 to 9 p.m., again at Novel Idea Bookstore, uh, Sandra Davies, uh, local Kingston uh, poet, Sandra Davies and Heather Robert Roberts-Cadsby will both launch their latest books at Novel Idea Bookstore, again, Thursday, October 18th. Actually, Sandra will be launching her first book of poetry called Giacometti's Gia Gia uh, Girl, and that's published by Cormorant, just came out. Heather, her latest book of poetry, Standing in a Flock of Connections, uh, that published by Brick. There will be a uh, reading and book signing. Uh, and this is for Mark Julian. This will celebrate the opening of the Artist in Community Education Anniversary Retrospective Exhibit uh, with a reading and book signing by him and illustrator of Justin Case and the Closet Monster. That's coming up a week from today, Friday, October 19th from 7 to 9 p.m. That will be held in the uh, Duncan uh, MacArthur Hall, Queens. Uh, the address for that is 11... Or I'm sorry, 511 Union Street, Kingston, uh, and that's uh, in that location in the studio, which uh, also is, uh, I'm guessing, room or lecture hall, B144 on the main floor. And then a week from tomorrow, uh, Brian Flack will be uh, back in town. He's author and publisher after having launched his latest novel, When Mad Men Lead the Blind. Uh, he will be doing a book signing. Originally did one at Novel Idea. This one will be in the chapters Indigo in the Cataraqui Mall. Uh, that is coming up a week from tomorrow, Saturday, October 20th, from noon to 5 p.m. And then the following day on Sunday, Tamworth uh, Bookshop Reading uh, will host Harold Hoffel and uh, Jeffrey Cook. Uh, they'll be the featured readings. Begins at 2 o'clock on Sunday. October 21st, and I guess I only got through another week again. So I'll tell you what, I just want to thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name is Bruce here every Friday from 4 to 6. Just a reminder, too, uh, both hours of the day show will be saved to my blog space for it shortly after I get home at uh, Finding a Voice on CFRCFM.wordpress.com will remain there four years. Do stay tuned right at 6 o'clock. Saltwater music coming up. Two hours of East Coast music with Rob Carnell. Have a great week. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.